I invite you this morning, though it's this holiday weekend, to go back to the book of James. We'll, we'll, we'll keep going. James chapter 2, and we've been looking at that argument on the sin of partiality, and we come to part 3 this morning. All of those are, uh, of course, on our web, on our web page. You can watch these and listen to these. And we've been looking at the argument in James 2 all the way through 13. And we looked at the first week in 2, 1 through 4, then last week at 2, 5 through 7. And then I come here to part 3 on James 2, 8 through 13, to finish this argument. Let me read beginning at chapter 2, verse 8. It says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one part has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There is the reading of the Word of God. James obviously forbids the sin of partiality. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My brothers, do not show partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He forbids us to show partiality. Now, we've been saying the last two weeks that partiality, just simply the word there, just means to receive by the face. And what James is saying is that we are not to prefer one another or one person over another because of appearance. That's partiality whether it's their clothes or whether it's any other aspect of their outward appearance. Bible commentator John Phillips recalls meeting a woman who would select a fashionable church and put on old, ill-fitting clothes, shabby shoes, and a very ugly, dowdy hat. And she would arrange her hair in an unsightly bun, and present herself at the church. Her main interest in doing that was in finding out what kind of treatment she would receive at the door. Pretty interesting. Either upon arrival or even at the end of the service, usually little or no attention was paid to her at all. No one cared if she came or went. And usually she received the perfunctory handshake at the door, the preacher's eyes being busy elsewhere, Philip said. The next Sunday she would present herself at the same church in a different guise, styled hair, wearing an expensive suit, a mink fur, and expensive jewelry. And on the way out, the pastor would be effusive. We're so glad to have you with us. This must be your first visit. We do hope you'll come back. And she would look at him. Oh, no, this is not my first visit. I was here last Sunday. As a matter of fact, you shook hands with me at the door then too. Surely not. 
Oh, yes. But you see, last Sunday, I dressed in old clothes and you really didn't see me at all. You said a perfunctory good morning. Then you hurried on to the lady behind me who was much more stylishly dressed than I. And no, I shall not be back. I hope nobody came in this morning under that disguise. But I wonder how we do greet people. Martin Luther King, you might not agree with all that he says, but he did say this, that American slavery could not have existed for almost 250 years if the church had not sanctioned it. Well said, well taken. I mean, we judge sometimes, sadly, by appearances. But the Scripture says that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the what? The heart. So to discriminate or to show preferential treatment of another based on their appearance or to receive by the face is a sin before God. Now, as we launched into this argument, remember we come that our faith is being tested. And it was tested in trials, chapter 1. It was tested, secondly, in temptations. Thirdly, it was tested in our obedience to the Word of God. And now, fourthly, it is tested in our reaction in 2, 1 through 13, to the sin of partiality. And that test, if you will, reveals the depth the lack or possibly the maturity of your faith. Now, in this argument, he's presenting five reasons why partiality is a sin and why it's inconsistent with our faith. We looked at the first one because of the command from God in verse 1. We look secondly because when you sin that way, you draw a comparison, and so it's wrong. Thirdly, partiality is sin because of the condemnation stated in verse 4 that you've made distinctions among yourselves and have become judges with evil motives. And then we left off last week that it's sin because of God's choice of you. And then he delineated those questions in there, all affirming a yes. Did not God choose the poor in the world? It implies an affirmative answer, yes. The second one that he asked is, are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Affirmative, yes. The third question was, are not the rich the ones who drag you into into court? And the answer is yes. And are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you have been called? And the answer is yes. And so here, it's a sin because of God's choice of you. And I bring you now to the final argument of why partiality is a sin. It's a sin because it is contrary to the royal law. In other words, the reason it's wrong to receive by the face is that it's contrary to God's royal law. Look at the text and let's pick it up together in verse 8. And apply this to your own setting, high school students. Apply this to the setting, junior high students. Apply this, adults, to your life and tell me where you are this morning. Examine your heart, for this is a test of your faith, what you do with this issue. 
So look at verse 8. He says, if you fulfill or you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, you are doing well. Now, he speaks there of the royal law. The royal law in verse 8, as you can see right there, is according to the Scripture. James has been in and around that theme of the Word of God. You are brought forth by the Word. You're to be a doer of the Word. You're to obey the perfect law of God in 125. And now he tells you to fulfill the royal law. In other words, this statement, this Scripture, if you will, is supreme. It is, in James' word, a royal law. And it is a supreme law, and it comes with sovereign authority. Now, that royal law in the Scripture is the sum of God's Word. In other words, the royal law is bringing all the Scripture together in one royal, sovereign, supreme law. And that royal law is summed up, look in the statement there, just to gain the argument. Here's the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's the royal law. You might ask, what is the royal law? It's that statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let me just expose this a little bit. This is not the first time that we've seen that scripture. Look over to Matthew chapter 22 just for a moment. And again, we're just building a little bit of a backlog here. But Matthew chapter 22, there Jesus stated this law. He didn't call it royal. It's a scripture, but we know from James teaching it's identified as the royal law. But in in Matthew chapter 22, you're familiar with this. In verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? You know this answer. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He said, this is the great and the first commandment. It's hard to believe that Jesus said that one commandment is great and one commandment is first. And of course, you know, the Jewish people did not understand what was important and what was not important. The Jewish people, even in the time of James' writing, made distinction between what was light and what was heavy. And I think I've shared with you before, they had about 365 laws that they were to keep, 365 laws that they were, part part was, you said they come up with that number, part of it was for the bones of the body. I mean, it was bizarre. And a Jewish person never really quite understood if he fulfilled the law. It would be as though he had to carry a little red wagon around with him containing what was acceptable and not acceptable in the law. And so they made in their own minds laws that were light and laws that were heavy, laws that didn't really matter and laws that were really serious. So this lawyer's no joke coming to Jesus saying, Jesus, you're the great teacher. Can you tell us what is the greatest commandment? In other words, I think he genuinely wanted to know. And Jesus, of course, quotes from the Shema here in Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you look over at Matthew 22 right there in verse 39, Jesus said, and the second 
is like it. And here it is. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's the second. They, they hang together, if you will. In other words, it's hard to believe. Jesus says if you take all of the Old Testament, all of the Scripture, all of the prophets, you can put them in these two commandments. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength vertically, and you love your neighbor as yourself horizontally. Look what Jesus said in 2240. He said, unbelievably so, on these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. That's stunning. You just hang them right there. In other words, there's, there's credence there. When you talk about this royal law, Jesus called it this, the great and foremost commandment. And I'm so glad that he put the second like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, because I think it becomes a test. You can say you love God vertically, give him lip service, but when you love God vertically, you're going to love man horizontally. Now, if, you, if you're thinking in that particular text, when James called it the royal law, and when he says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, the one that he particularly had in mind is bound in the book of Leviticus. So look there just for a moment, okay? Genesis, you know that, Exodus, Leviticus. Look over in Leviticus chapter 19. In other words, James is stating the royal law, and I love it because James is the first book ever written in the New Testament as we looked at week one. We find it in the back of the New Testament, but man, he's writing, he's picking up a pen on parchment, spilling ink on that parchment about 10 years probably after the death of Jesus Christ. And he's talking about if you fulfill the royal law, here's the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. Where did he get it? He got it out of Leviticus 19. In Leviticus chapter 19, it says there, and you can see it in 19, look at verse 17. You shall not hate your brother, he says, in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of them. Now watch this. 19.18, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall, what does it say? Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Very interesting, isn't it? Right there. He says, you, look at it again in 19.18, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, maybe I'll point this out again. If you're just right there in 19, look back at verse 15. Verse 15, chapter 19, verse 15. He says, you shall do no injustice in courts. Okay, he's talking legally here. You shall not be, here's our word, partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. So he tells us right there in 1915 to not be partial, he says to the poor, nor Grace Church of the Valley should you ever defer to the great. Then he comes back in 1918 and says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I point out one little phrase there. Look down in the text in verse 18. It's very interesting. I don't know if you caught it. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge. Now, here's the, here's the phrase. Do you see this? 
against the sons of your what? People. Interesting. Now, maybe that's how the Jews read it. In other words, don't do this, but right out of the text, don't do it against the sons of your people. But you and I well know that in Jesus' teaching, the scope of that term on love your neighbor as yourself is enlarged. And you remember that in the account of the Good Samaritan, Jesus revealed that one's neighbor includes anyone that we might come into contact with, including those of a different race. So Jesus took the Scripture, then He elevated the Scripture. In fact, Jesus so elevated, love your neighbor as yourself, that He even said to you, Grace Church, that you ought to love your enemy. In fact, He said in Matthew 5.44, but I say to you, love your enemies. So here, a neighbor, both old and new, as you put them together, is anyone who needs our care or our attention, anyone that comes into our path. This is the royal law. In fact, look back in your Bible to the book of Romans just for a moment. I just want you to see what this royal law is. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus cited it in in Matthew 22. It's cited there particularly in Leviticus 19. But look over to Paul. Paul, in chapter 13, in that wonderful argument there, where he's telling us to fulfill the law through love. Look what he says. You know this text in Romans chapter 13, 8. Owe to, owe no one, he says, anything except to, what? Love each other. He says, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Now look what he says. For the commandments says you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, covet, and any other commandment are summed up in the word, and here's the royal law. You shall love your neighbor, what? As yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love is the fulfilling of the law. I mean, I think we understand that. If you and I truly loved our neighbor, fair, you would never murder your neighbor. You would never commit adultery with your neighbor. You would never steal from your neighbor. You would never covet from your neighbor. Why? Because you would love your neighbor as yourself. And you would never do to your neighbor what you would never want your neighbor to do to you. And so here, Paul just says in that great statement, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And so here, that royal law is stated, is summed up in one word in 13.9, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Look, if you will, to the book of Galatians just for a moment. Go to the book of Galatians. You can see that this theme is all over the word of God. But in the book of Galatians, In Galatians chapter 5, Paul addresses this same argument, basically saying that Christ has set us free from the law, but he says this in Galatians 5, in verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, 
Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now watch this. Unbelievable. For the whole law, there's the royal law, is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor, what? As yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. As one writer said, the purpose behind this royal law is obvious. Because we love ourselves, we do not want to be killed, lied to, stolen from, or abused. And if we love others with the same degree of love, then our concern, with our, and our concerns, we will never do those things to them, thereby fulfilling the law. Now, let me just clarify one thing just as we build this, is that when the Scripture says to love our neighbors as what? Ourselves, and just that last phrase, ourselves, it does not mean that we must learn to love ourselves first before we can love others. That's not what it's saying. It's simply acknowledging that we already nurture and care for ourselves. Paul used that thinking in in Ephesians 5.29 where he told the man to love his wife as he loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it. So the thought here is that we naturally love ourselves, feed ourselves, clothe ourselves, and are generally concerned for our bodies. And James' point is this. As you would do that for yourself, you should demonstrate that love for others as well. So here is, you can see it as you turn back to the book of James, here is the royal law. We might say it's the king of all laws. And when you fulfill this law, look back in the book of James now. When you obey that law and you love your neighbor as yourself, meaning that you love him or her in the same way and you're not a receiver of people, when you truly love your neighbor as yourself, James says at the end of verse 8, he says you are doing well. He says excellent. He says, that's right in essence. That's, that's noble. When you do that, you are doing well. But he doesn't finish there. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. But if you show partiality, you say, what is it again? It's to receive by the face. If you show partiality, you are committing what? Sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. In other words, James is saying that some might say that, hey, this ideal of people and how we treat people, um, that's not the way we do things here. Well, James says, no, no, that's not the way we do things up there, okay? In other words, James says here, if you commit partiality, you're in sin. In in fact, to be just blunt with you, partiality is an ugly, vicious sin. And James says when you or I commit that sin, you are here in 2.9 convicted by the law. In other words, when you discriminate based on dress, based on race, Based on social class, it is a sin. It breaks, here's his point, God's law and causes you 
to become, look at verse 9. You're not only convicted by the law, but you are convicted by the law as a what? Transgressor of the law. So what does that mean? I, well, I think you understand it. If when I grew up, we would hop the fence and go play baseball. And before we did that, um, I'm sure I was before Christ, it said no trespassing. Well, we hopped and we weren't in any classes. We were just playing out there on the field. It's to cross over the forbidden line. And of course, God's law isn't just a law made by the school district. God's law rules over all. And if you show partiality, or I do, then you're convicted by the law and you're a transgressor of God's law. You say, well, how serious is this sin? Listen, beloved. It's real serious. Look at the text in 2.10. James, incredible statement. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails, fails in one point has become what? Accountable for all of it or guilty for all of it. That's how serious it is. In other words, you may think that partiality is not a big, uh, it's not as a big of sin as others. But listen, Jesus said breaking God's law, no matter how big or how small, is great. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5.19, whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments is to violate all of God's law. So to transgress, beloved, one part of the law is to transgress the whole law. In other words, in order to become a sinner, you don't have to just disobey, or actually you do. To just to become a sinner, you don't have to be a massive sinner. You just have to disobey one commandment. And so from the scripture, it teaches that we are under obligation to keep all the law, not just parts of it, and to break any of the commandments of God is to divide his authority, which is sin. In other words, James is arguing that all of the law of God is one unified whole. This last summer, just maybe a few months back, our, our shower door at the house, something happened on the track above it. You know, you just slide it, you know, and it slides. And something happened on the track. And I thought, this thing is... This thing's ridiculous. Until I get this whole track on the top and the bottom fixed, it's not going to work. In fact, it's so broke that the door kind of slid in and it was just, you couldn't even use this restroom. So I picked up the glass door and uh, I thought, I'm just going to take it outside into the backyard. It's just useless until we get this track fixed. And um, so I grabbed the door. If you can, it's a glass door like this. And uh, I walked it outside very carefully very gently, not, you know, forcefully, wasn't mad at the glass door, any of that. I just was taking it outside so I could put a curtain up there so that can function. And as I got outside with this shower glass door, very kindly, I just set it on the ground to lean it against the wall. And what happened? Like in a, in a, it wasn't like one of those... No, that's not what I'm talking about. All I know is I just set it down and it just went in five 
thousand little tiny pieces of glass. And I'm like, what's up with that? I didn't even know what happened. I thought maybe I hit something, but I didn't. It was just the way I set it down very gently, very kindly. And I'm telling you, in a matter of one second, boom, the whole thing just shattered on me on the ground. And what James is saying is that God's law is like that. It's it's not that you just pick a piece over there and chip it and your life's okay over here. He says, if you break one of the commandments, you break all of them. In other words, his law stands as a unified whole. In fact, I think you've heard me share this before. This was the scripture, James 2.10, that brought me to the Lord. Because until that time, I thought I was okay. Until that time, I thought I was a nice guy. But until that time, I thought that my good would override my bad. But I didn't recognize the fact that I was born into sin until the Lord in that moment, when I was 14 years of age, showed me how I was a sinner. And when he showed me how I was a sinner, I can just tell you where I was standing, the place I was standing. It was like that shower door that just went down. My life just at that point went down in shambles. And I knew for the first time in my life that I needed a savior. I realized that if I broke one of the commandments of God, verse 10, I was accountable for all of it. And then it wasn't a matter of weighing out the good and the bad. I realized that one sin was enough to condemn me to hell. In other words, it would be like this. Picture this. If you're hanging over a cliff and somehow on that cliff, you're holding onto a, onto a kind of a, a linked chain, okay? And your friend is above you, holding you, telling you to not let go. And you've got a 10-link chain that you're holding onto. And if link number four broke, you would what? You would die, okay? Because link four was bad on the links. It doesn't matter if the other links were good. If one of them broke, you would fall. And that's what James is saying. He's saying in, in, in Galatians 3.10, Paul says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Okay? Now, he takes us here to an illustration. Look at the illustration in 2.11. Look what he says. Fascinating. Incredibly fascinating. For he who said, watch this argument, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. He said, if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become what? A transgressor of the law. Just at face value, he chooses two serious social sins. Two, obviously, specific commands that both deal with our neighbor. You don't want to commit adultery and you don't want to murder. And the argument is, if you don't commit adultery, but you violate God's law and murder someone, you have transgressed the law. In other words, your innocence in one area does not excuse it in another area, or it's to say this, here's the point. If you do not murder, but you as an individual or a church show partiality, you've become a transgressor of the law, even as an adulterer 
and even as a murderer. Pretty specific, right? I mean, even if partiality is the only sin commit, you are guilty of all of God's law. Let me bring it a little closer to home, okay? You may, in most aspects, appear to be religious. You may, even in our city, appear moral. You may even be politically conservative. You may be even faithful at our church. You may be esteemed by others. Yet, if you show partiality, you have sinned and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. In fact, you say, well, how serious is it? Well, it's so serious. Look what he says in verse 12, okay? He tells us, does James, and we'll try to unpack this, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged, watch what he says, under the law of liberty. In other words, Grace Church of the Valley, put your name in there, so speak and so act. In other words, what you say and what you do, and that's what he's been talking about in James, as those who are judged by, now look, you see it there in that phrase, the law of liberty. Now you say, what is the law of liberty? Well, I know for certain that it is not the judgment of the wicked, because it's the judgment of the law of liberty. If the judgment of the wicked, you would associate that maybe in past teaching, truthfully so, with the great white throne judgment. If you die this morning and you stand before Christ without Christ, you will await the great, the great white throne judgment. That is a judgment for unbelievers, okay? But I don't think that's what he has in mind because I think he's talking to us. Doesn't he keep saying, you know, brothers, my brothers, my brothers. He's talking to a believer at this point. What he's talking about here, so speak and so act as those who are judged, is I really think he's getting at what we call the Bema seat judgment. That is the judgment for rewards or the judgment for uh, rewards that will be burned up. Say, so what are you talking about, Scott? Well, the scripture says that you, and I just put it this way, not like I'm distancing myself from it. You will be judged by Christ on your conformity to God's word. Now, we don't hear much about this, do we? No, I just, I, and, and, and you say, well, can you show that? Yeah, I'll show that to you. I think this has to be what James is talking about. Now, certainly, let me backtrack. We will not be condemned according to Romans 8.1. There is now, therefore, no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We understand that, okay? We have been, according to Paul's argument in Romans 5, justified, past tense. You've been declared righteous. Jesus said in John 5.24 that we shall not come into Judgment, And of course, there he's talking about the great white throne judgment because our sins have already been judged in Christ. However, you and I will be examined by God for our works and there will be a day of both reward and loss. 
say, well, Scott, I, I've, I've not really heard that before. Well, then, okay, let me just show you. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Maybe certainly you've seen this before. There needs to be more teaching on this, and certainly I believe James is addressing this. He's talking to believers in 2 Corinthians 5.10, and I'm trying to illustrate here what we call the Bema Seat Judgment. We give it that word because that's the word designated for judgment for believers in the Greek. He says in 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment, there it is, seat of Christ. Wait, you say, Pastor, are you telling me that I'll have to appear before Christ? Yes, you will. You say, but I've already had my sins forgiven. Yes, you have. You say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I understand that. But you will stand before the Lord. That's what it says in 5.10. So look what he says there in 5.10. So that each one of you may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or what? Evil. I mean, it'd be really, and I'm not trying to like throw fear in any of you, but certainly you don't think that you can just walk an aisle, pray a prayer, and come to Christ, and that's marvelous, and not give an account for your stewardship before the Lord. You will give an account for what you've done in the body. That's what we call the bema seat. It's not a, it's not a judgment of of. Uh, of condemnation, but it is a judgment of the stewardship that God has entrusted to you and to me, and whether whatever you've done. In fact, let me just back up to 1 Corinthians now. Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Certainly you've seen this before, but see it in this context. And you know this scripture if you've been around truth for a little while. 1 Corinthians 3.12. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, okay, or in the white pages, uh, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort, sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a what? Reward. He's entrusted you. You have a spiritual gift. You've been given finances. You've been given the gospel. And if you, anyone who builds upon that foundation... He will receive a reward. But look at 3.15. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer what? Loss. You say he goes to hell. No, no. It says that he suffers loss, comma, though he himself will be what? Saved, but only as through what? Fire. Doesn't mean you lose your salvation. We all know that. But you will give an account So let me come back. James is saying, so speak and so act as those who will give an account to the Lord on that day. I mean, there's more on this. Look over in Romans just for a second. I don't want to go too far. Romans chapter 14. There in that great, great section of 
judging brothers. It's a gray area in Scripture. We, what do you do with the gray areas? Okay, Do you watch Catching Fire? Is that the new movie? Or do you not watch Catching? I don't know. Um, do, you, do you go to that kind of stuff or not go? But all I know, here's what it says in 14.10 of Romans. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? Question mark. And here it is. For we will all stand before the what? Judgment seat of God. I mean, that's a sobering deal. I will give an account for you. And you will stand before the Lord and give an account for your life. Now, you say, well, Scott, is it the great white throne? No. Jesus has mercifully covered your sin. But so speak and so act as those who will give an account to the Lord with the issue of partiality. But let me drive it home. With the issue of the poor and with the issue of widows, context, and with the issue of orphans, you and I will give an account. That's what it says right there in verse 10. Glance down at verse 12. I'm in Romans 14, 12. So each, so then each of us will give an account of himself to what? God. I mean, do you just not think you're going to give an account? You will give an account. And um, you say, well, what will it be like? Well, I don't know. All I just know is that you read it as I do it. I will stand before the Lord. You will stand before the Lord. He will ask you about your time. He will ask you about your talents. He will ask you about your treasures. He will ask you about, you'll just give an account for all the blessings that he's given to you, and you will either be given reward or loss. You say, well, how does that find itself out? I think in the kingdom of God, I think in the kingdom of God, there's going to be spheres of service based on our faithfulness to him. You say, well, Scott, how could there be parts in heaven where some people are serving because of their faithfulness and others will, will have more menial service because of their unfaithfulness, even though they're in Christ? You'd have to read Jonathan Edwards at that point. He's got some great stuff on that, but I believe that. Heaven will be heaven. It's the same, and I don't want to confuse you, it's the same contrast in hell. Hell is hell, but are there degrees of hell? Jesus said to Judas, it would have been better for that man if he had never been what? Born. Jesus said to the city of Bethsaida and Chorazin, woe to you, for if the miracles would have occurred in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have what? Repented. Woe to you to have me in your presence. Think of the people who actually attributed to Christ the work of the devil. There are degrees of hell in that sense, and yet hell is hell. But here at this point, you'll give an account. And I'm not trying to, I'm not, well, I, I, I guess I just let the word speak. Just so speak and so act as those will give an account. And in the context with partiality, and I would say you better never, ever, Treat one of God's people made in his image with partiality. That's what James is saying here. It's a very, very incredible passage. James is saying that both our words and our actions will be judged, okay? And what we say to others and how we treat others will come before God for examination. And we'll give an account for our life. Don't you think that's why Paul said after Speaking of the Bema seed in 2 Corinthians 5.10, he said this in the next verse that he said in 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we what? 
we persuade men. I mean, I, I don't know what kind. I, I grew up around teaching like this. It's the Bible. But when you grow up around to make a decision when you're five, go to a camp when you're seven, go to the youth group when you're in junior high, and then bail for the rest of your existence, listen, you're going to give an account before the Lord. And then if that's not all, would you look at the last phrase, the last verse in James? Look at this. This is incredible. And I'm going to try to do my best here. For judgment is without, and I'm in 2.13, without mercy to the one who has shown no, what? Mercy. And then he says, and make this a different statement, verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. I think he's got two thoughts going, two judgments in mind. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. In other words, you, and I don't even want to say you, the judgment is without mercy to those who show no mercy. I think what James is getting at here, he's leading us into the next section, which is the next three weeks that I preach. Maybe not the 22nd. For sure the 8th and for sure the 15th. I think what he's really saying is when you have a merciless heart, and you're, you have no mercy at all, then you give evidence that you're not even in Christ. I think that's what he's saying. For judgment, and I don't think he's talking to us as believers. I think he's just talking to people who are in the sphere of this who don't know the Lord, that that judgment will be merciless because that person has shown no mercy, maybe in the context to the poor, to the widow, and the orphan. I mean, this is the Old Testament. I mean, the people of God failed, and they neglected mercy. God told the unrepentant Israelites that he required mercy and not sacrifice in Hosea 6.6. In the book of Micah, Micah, God said through the prophet, and what does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love, what? Mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We know that scripture. In fact, God through Zechariah said, administer true justice, show mercy, mercy and compassion to one another. But you well know, and I do, that the Jews turned a deaf ear to God's law. And so the person here who refuses to extend mercy will experience God's justice without mercy, okay? That's how I take it. The person who refuses to extend mercy will experience God's justice without mercy. Failure to show mercy to those in need calls into question whether there has been any true act of repentance in the face of God's mercy. In other words... In order to be genuine, the believer's faith must include mercy. And here must not be partial to the poor, to the widows, to the orphans. Do you see how, how James is on it, isn't he? This is not a minor deal. This is a big deal. It's a big deal for our church. It's a big deal how people come in. It should it never matter what they look like. It should it never matter what color they have. Should never matter what kind of clothes they're dressed in. Should never matter what kind of social class. And if you're like the guy, the usher, what a bad usher that was. Here, you come sit down here. 
And then you say to the poor man, you kind of take a seat, not on my foot still. You get underneath my foot. He says, you're, you're convicted of doing that. The reason why I think he's talking maybe here about ultimate salvation at this point is, do you remember when Jesus said, and you remember, Lord, when did we see you hungry? Lord, when did we feed you? Lord, when were you thirsty or give you a drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and we clothed you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it, what? To me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. Now we're not talking just beam a seat judgment. You who claim to be religious... Jesus said, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and the angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then you will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it, what, to me. And Jesus says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so there he's equating your ability to not show partiality, not just with suffering loss in the judgment seat of Christ as you and I stand before him. He's talking about some people who name Christ, who show no affection for people, or they receive or defer or partial to the people who pad their own account. Remember when Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive what? Mercy. As you show mercy, you receive mercy. And again, this is not something you do to gain your salvation. It becomes the fruit of what's connected to the root in your heart. If in the root of your heart, you have received the mercy of God and you've been touched with that forgiveness and you knew that you were a miserable, poor sinner, and God marvelously picked you up out of the mire and saved you, then how could you go out and not treat people with the same mercy that you've received from God? So blessed, Jesus said, are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so the roots of the heart shows in the fruit of the life. And then the last phrase, look at this in 2.13. He says, mercy, I love this statement, triumphs over judgment. I mean, if, if it, obviously, mercy was given at the cross. Mercy was given to the believer. And there is mercy given to us who display mercy to the poor. And again, in the context, to the widows and to the orphans. And our mercy toward another reveals the presence of God and his word at work in our life. I think of this account I took it out of my notes. 
a couple days ago, and I put it back in yesterday. Um, because it was, it's about Amy Carmichael. She was a missionary, as many of you know, in India. And Elizabeth Elliot wrote a book about Amy Carmichael. The book's called, it's a great book, A Chance to Die, The Life and Legacy of Amy Carmichael. And there's an excerpt in it, Amy Carmichael, here of her own writing from her diary. She said, The decisive moment which determined the direction of her life came on a dull Sunday morning in Belfast as her family was returning from church. So just picture that. They saw what they had never seen before in a Presbyterian church in Belfast. She said, An old woman lugging, if you will, a heavy bundle. Amy and her brothers turned around, took the bundle, and helped her along by the arms. This meant, Amy Carmichael said, facing all the respectable people who were, like ourselves, on our way home. She said it was a horrid moment. We were only two boys and a girl and not at all exalted Christians. We hated doing it crimson she said all over at least we felt crimson soul and body of us we plodded on a wet wind blowing us about and blowing to the rags of the old woman until she seemed like a bundle of feathers and unhappily mixed up with them then there she came to an ornate victorian fountain in the street and just as they passed here's what amy carmichael said This mighty phrase was suddenly flashed, as it were, through the great drizzle. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. Every man's work shall be manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be declared by fire, and the fire shall test every man's work to see what sort it is. Amy turned to see who had spoken, and there was nothing but the fountain, the muddy street, the people with surprised faces, and the children plodded on with the bundle of feathers. But something happened that day to Amy Carmichael that forever changed her life. She had to get beyond what people would think and do what was the the deed for the Lord and what the Lord required. And so the knowledge that God gave her as judge gave her the strength of character to ignore the pressures of a class-driven society and forever identify with the poor. Listen, he presents five reasons why it is a sin. Because of the command from God, because of the comparison that it draws, because of the condemnation that he states, because of God's choice of the poor, and here, because it's contrary to God's law. Amen?